Let's read together from the Word of God as we turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke uh, chapter 6, and we'll begin to read at verse number 32. At this point we have what's often known as the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew's Gospel has Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and here on a different occasion, but dealing with many of the same themes, uh, we have the Sermon on the Plain. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told him this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There are some people, maybe you've met a few of them, who are very good at pointing out the failings and the faults of others. Now, I'm not talking about the person who comes along as somebody just finishes a paint job and very helpfully says, oh, you missed a bit. That's a very dangerous thing to say, but it's not at that level uh, that we're thinking of finding faults and failures. But there are those, aren't there, who seem to almost get a pleasure in finding feelings among people, uh, something in what they believe or in what they do. And some Christians uh, seem to be very good at that, aren't they? Some who may even say, well, look, the the Bible uh, requires me to tell you this uh, and to point out just where you're going wrong there or even the Lord told me to tell you. I wonder if you ever had someone say that to you. 
pointing out some failing, some shortcoming that they perceive in what you think or in what you're doing. And often wrapped up in, in very spiritual language. And of course, they might be right in what they're saying. They might indeed have seen some failing in your belief or your conduct. But people who are very good at finding the faults and failings in others sometimes have very little perception of their own faults. Very little recognition that when they see failings in others, they themselves have failings, maybe even greater. Perhaps a good test of their sincerity and their spiritual depth is in the same helpful way to to point out one of their failings and see what kind of reaction you get. Uh, And it might be a, a very strong reaction. They might be happy to tell others where they're going wrong, but if you try to tell them of their feelings, immediately they will flare up as if you'd lit their fuse. What does the Lord have to say about these issues? Very practical issues, particularly within the fellowship of God's people. So today we come to Luke 6, and we're thinking of verses 37 to 42, getting a clear view, getting a clear view. Because that essentially is what the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about here and using some very striking and very graphic language to drive the lesson home, getting a clear view. First of all, the Savior speaks about sinful judging. Sinful judging. And Jesus continues in these verses to expound uh, the kind of open-hearted, merciful lifestyle that ought to characterize his disciples. This is the way in which true disciples ought to be living. Do not judge, and you will not Be judged, he says in verse 37. And then we read those words, and perhaps it occurs to you, but are there not other parts of the Bible that tell us we should judge and we must judge? Isn't that the case? How can this command of the Lord Jesus Christ be consistent with passages in the New Testament that expect Christians to exercise their critical faculties. If you turn, for example, to 1 Corinthians 5, there Paul, addressing a very troubled congregation, commands the church to deal with immorality within its own ranks. And he asks the question, 1 Corinthians 5, 12, are you not to judge those inside. How do you square that with the command, do not judge? Are are they contradictory? Is there a tension here? Or again, if you turn to Galatians chapter 1, 
And there, verses 6 to 9, Paul uh, is expecting the Christians in the Galatian congregations to judge between contending versions of the gospel and to conclude that this is the gospel and this is not. They're to use their critical faculties. Again, how do we square that with a command, do not judge? Is there a contradiction in the scriptures? Well, we know, of course, as the God-breathed scriptures, there is no contradiction in what is taught anywhere in scripture with any other part of the Bible. So how do we deal with this apparent contradiction? Well, when Paul's addressing the Corinthian church, the Galatian congregations, there are cases where the church, especially the leaders of the church, are to exercise what we could call biblical discernment, informed by God's word as they oversee God's people discernment regarding belief and conduct, belief in Galatia, where people were being drawn off to a false gospel, its conduct in Corinth, where there was great immorality. And the leaders in particular in the church are to use biblical discernment and corrective discipline for the health of the people of God. But when we turn to a passage like Luke 6, the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing here with personal relationships among God's people. And he's forbidding unjust, hypocritical judging of others. The kind of judging that involves a critical self-righteous spirit. The spirit that thinks if I find a fault in somebody else, somehow that builds me up and I'm a better person. That's the sort of spirit that lies behind uh, the judging that's condemned here. We could call it a a fault-finding attitude. And there are those who do delight in finding fault in others, not least because if that's not their own fault, they can feel better about themselves. So it is a self-righteous, fault-finding frame of mind that the Savior has in view. And so, as he goes on, do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. And we know that we may be judged, we may be condemned by other people, when they see us exhibiting that kind of self-righteous spirit. But surely far more serious is the reality of the, the judging and the condemning that lies ahead of those who exhibit this spirit and have none of the grace of God in their hearts. That's the condemning and the judging that needs to be feared And they will stand before God to give account for that attitude. It certainly strongly suggests this is a person who's a stranger to the forgiving grace of God. And so they are in great danger of being judged and condemned. Now, of course, in forbearing to judge and 
condemn. We're not in any sense contributing to our salvation. We are not building up merit with God uh, that contributes to uh, forgiveness and release from sin. But what we are doing when we forbear to judge in this way, when we do not condemn uh, in this self-righteous manner, what we are doing is demonstrating that we have been changed by grace. That we are among the true disciples of the Savior. Just as the forgiving of enemies that we thought about uh, last week demonstrates a heart changed by the grace of God, so here, if we are free of this self-righteous judging and condemning, we are demonstrating that we have a heart changed by the grace of God. So it is when Jesus says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. He's not for a moment suggesting that our forgiving others earns forgiveness of our sins in a kind of trade-off. If I forgive this sinner, then God will forgive me. Certainly not. That's a travesty of gospel forgiveness. But if there is a reluctance or an unwillingness to forgive, then that calls into question someone's profession of having received God's forgiveness. If your sin has been forgiven by the God against whom you committed that sin, that will be, it must be reflected in a forgiving spirit. And if that forgiving spirit is absent, have you really experienced the forgiveness of the Lord? A readiness to forgive, along with the not judging and the not condemning, demonstrates a true disciple's heart. It speaks of grace that has been received, transforming grace that gives us a whole set of attitudes that are the very opposite of how the world around us functions. And often the world's baffled when it sees that kind of attitude in Christians. We are to be different. As Jesus has said, to be imitators of our Father in heaven. We have been forgiven. And we understand what that entails and what it cost. Then there will be a readiness to forgive on our part. Note, as Jesus says in verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. It's a call to open-hearted generosity that has the benefit of others as its focus. Not in order to get, but because of that love for others, enemies included, we'll give. And the Lord is no man's debtor. And if we show that open-hearted generosity to others, the result Jesus says, will be abundant blessing, a good measure, pressed down. All that the disciple needs to live as a disciple. He is not promising 
that we'll be wealthy in the world's scale of values. He is not promising that your bank account uh, will be healthy. But he is telling us that the Lord will supply abundantly whatever you need to live the Christian life. Paul sums it up in Philippians 4.19, doesn't he? My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That is the good measure pressed down, that you will not lack any good. That's what we sing of in Psalm 23. What we do not lack is what is good for us and for the Lord's glory. A good measure. Basic principle, as Jesus spells it out, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And the challenge, of course, then what measure are we using in our relationships with others and with the Lord's people in particular? Is there that open-hearted generosity that the Savior commands and commends to us? Or is there something of the fault-finding, critical outlook that gets a certain satisfaction from spotting the failures and the weaknesses and the sins of others and somehow feeling better because you've been able to do that? Sinful judging. We need to be on our guard. It is so easy to slip into that outlook. And when we have a right concern, of course, with truth and with godliness, as we should, we must always beware that that doesn't slide into this critical spirit that Jesus condemns. Sinful judging. Secondly, the Lord speaks of wise leadership wise leadership. And we have it there from verse 39, and what at first may seem a puzzling saying. He told them uh, this parable. Now, it's not, as we often think of a parable, as a, a, an extended story, but it's, it's making one striking graphic point uh, in these verses. Can a blind man lead a blind man? What's the point of this parable of this saying. Well, the issue clearly is leadership, spiritual leadership. That's the kind of leading uh, that Jesus is speaking about, and he's telling us, as would be true uh, in the everyday realm, it's folly for someone lacking sight to presume to lead another who lacks sight. And if we apply that to the spiritual realm, Jesus is saying it is folly. It's courting disaster if someone who is lacking spiritual understanding, who in spiritual terms is blind, to think he can lead someone else or to presume he can lead someone else. So one commentator Uh, And the passage, Leon Morris uh, says, as the leader, in this parable, as the leader can see no further than the lead, 
The only future for both is disaster. He's got it exactly right. They are heading for disaster. Someone who doesn't have a clear uh, spiritual vision is not able to lead others. In one sense, we might think that's obvious. And yet, it isn't always practiced within the fellowship of God's people or an individual relationships. It applies in many areas, of course, of Christian living and discipleship and congregational life and and any kind of Christian witness. But of course, especially the principle applies to those who have responsibilities of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, are they clear-sighted? Do they have good spiritual vision? We're not suggesting that Anyone who leads someone else must have a perfect understanding of truth. None of us has that. If that was what was required, then none of us would ever lead another, much less exercise leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. But is their vision clear? Have they a a, a grasp and an understanding of the fundamental truths of the word of God that equips them to then lead others, to share that understanding and to help to direct others in the path of discipleship, to help them to avoid the pits of which there are many. And if this is not put into practice, if those who lead others do not have clear spiritual sight, then they will fall and they will take others into the pit. Pit of confusion, a pit of sin. Conceivably, ultimately, a pit of lostness. That blindness has to be addressed. Now, praise God, it can be addressed. It is not the case that we say, well, I don't have spiritual vision, so there will never be any role of leadership for me. The blindness can be, it should be, addressed in the biblical way. And the focus must be the teacher. The teacher who is ultimate authority. The teacher who is Christ himself who proclaims this word. The focus must be directed to him. He has the ultimate authority. We're told in verse 40, a student is not above his teacher. Not every student believes that that is the case, it has to be said. But it's true nonetheless. It's also frightening for the teacher. The responsibility that is given for others. But of course it is Christ the teacher who must be the center of our attention. It is in Christ that we find the healing for our spiritual blindness and equipping for service. We must not simply say, well, I don't have the understanding. I'm short-sighted at least, if not blind spiritually. I just have to live like that. No. Here is the Lord's solution. 
that blindness can be healed. And it is the Lord who is able to heal. Jesus uses a very significant word in verse 40. Everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Quite a vivid expression. You find it in Mark 1.19, for example, that the fishermen are, after night's fishing, they're repairing their nets, they're getting them ready for another night's fishing. And that's the word Jesus uses. Someone who is prepared and repaired spiritually by the Lord, prepared with an understanding of the truth, with damage repaired, and every one of us carries damage because of sin. There are no exceptions. But it is the Lord who is able to repair the damage. We don't throw up our hands and say, well, that's just the way I am. I'll never be any different. The Lord repairs as the fishermen repaired the nets. Sometimes it took them hard work to do that. But they had a goal, the goal that these nets would be useful, that they would be productive. And in terms of spiritual leadership, the Lord works in his people and repairs little by little, repairing the damage that's been done, preparing us for useful service, strengthening us, deepening our understanding of his word. And that's the work that the teacher does in each of us. That the nets are ready for service. And so that disciples are ready for service. That they are productive. That they are fruitful. That they can perform the service for which God has designed them. And so they are fully Trained. Of course, it is a lifelong process. Ultimately, in this life, we will not be fully, fully trained. The Lord works and changes and shapes and repairs the damage so that we can give him useful service. And that's true for all disciples. But in particular, of course, for those called to leadership, the oversight of the Lord's people. We must undergo that process, that repairing, that preparation of the Lord. It begins, of course, with the forgiveness of sins. That is fundamental. Our sin must be dealt with. It must be forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Without that, you're not equipped to serve the Lord in any capacity, least of all in leadership. struck me particularly many years ago, the first time I met with the Student Oversight Committee in the Northern Presbytery, preparing to go to the college. The first question I was asked was, tell us your experience of salvation. And that is the right first question. If you haven't an answer to that question, it doesn't matter what else you can do or how gifted you are or what people think you may do. That's fundamental. So we begin the, the training 
with the forgiveness of sins. Of course, we will need fresh experience of that grace and forgiveness day in, day out for the rest of our lives. The cause of the blindness must be removed. And then that provides a fit context for what Jesus goes on to say in verse 41 and 42. When we receive that forgiveness, the barrier of sin, the blindness is healed. And we are ready for fruitful service in whatever way the Lord wills to use us. In your particular setting, in your home, your family, your work, the Lord equips you to serve him there, to be a witness, perhaps to guide others spiritually. Maybe one person, it may be many. It's the Lord's concern what work he gives you. But that is our goal, that we are not stumbling on, blind ourselves and damaging others, but that we see clearly, forgiven of sin, equipped, repaired by the Lord for fruitful, for productive service. And such a one will be like his teacher. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you want? To be like Jesus, the teacher, to become more and more like him, to reflect him, and to honor him in your service, your ministry to other people. Sinful judging, wise leadership, and finally blatant hypocrisy. Blatant hypocrisy. Jesus is carrying on this thought of clear-sightedness in spiritual things. Clear-sightedness, notice, regarding our sins and our failures. We started out saying there are people who are very good at seeing the sins and failures of others. Jesus puts the spotlight on each of us. And the concern is our sins, our failures. Now there is a place in the church of Jesus Christ for dealing with the sins and the faults of others. Make no mistake about that. Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore the erring brother gently. And you know we live in a day when the very idea of church discipline is a joke to the world and rarely ever implemented. There is a proper biblical place for gentle, gracious, godly discipline. Informal ways, but also in informal ways, one-to-one as brothers and sisters. But there's always the danger lurking of hypocrisy. And we must be on our guard and alert to that danger. Jesus is not saying you should never spot a speck of sawdust in a brother's eye. You should never do anything about it. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying before you get to that point, if you ever do, something far more serious has to be dealt with. And you look at the language that Jesus uses here, and he's using a figure of speech that we call hyperbole. That sounds grand, but it's 
It's quite simple. He's using dramatic, exaggerated language. It's not to be taken literally. But as Jesus from time to time did, he was using this kind of exaggerated, striking language to drive home a point. And so here, visualize it if you can. On the one hand, there's a speck of dust in a person's eye. But then in your own eye, Jesus is saying, there is a plank or a log the ESV has either. A plank. Now, literally, of course, it's not the case. But here is someone, if you can visualize it, with a plank sticking out of their eye. And he comes along and says, oh, I can see a wee speck in your eye there. And the plank is there. And they can't see anything. That's the striking language Jesus uses. You visualize it. And you can't miss the lesson uh, that he is setting out in front of us. It makes it so much more memorable, of course, when you think through what he is saying and you you visualize the the picture that he's painting for us. There's an element of humor in it. I believe Jesus did on occasion, uh, in a profoundly wise and gracious way, make use of humor to make a lesson really stick with people. They thought about this and saw it in their mind's eye. You wouldn't quickly forget it. And so here, here's a person who comes along and says, let me take the speck out of your eye. Now there may well be a speck there. And this person's brother may well be quite sincere in wanting to, to deal with the speck in your eye. He's concerned about it. Maybe he's anxious for you. Wouldn't it be better if the speck was taken out of your eye? But Jesus says, you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. And since it's so big, you can't see it. That's blocking out your vision. And it is the danger that we ignore our own sins and failings which are far greater than the specks in the eyes of our brothers. The plank is there, blocking our vision. But it's the speck that's this person's concern. Not the plank. You hypocrite. Jesus says that is a powerful condemnation. The Savior would say to someone, you hypocrite. There you are looking for specks. And there's this great plank in your eye that you cannot see clearly to deal with anybody else. The plank is blocking your vision. First, take the plank out of your eye, Jesus says. Seek forgiveness for your sins, which are great. The Lord can take the plank out we confess our sin and seek forgiveness, he will take the plank out. That's the wonder of grace. There is no plank too big. There's no sin too great for the Lord in grace to deal with it. We seek that the plank be removed. Then, Jesus says, you will see clearly. You'll be able to deal in a loving way gentle, gracious way with a speck in your brother's eye if you feel it still needs to be dealt with. 
The right order is essential. The plank in your eye needs to be taken out. You'll do no good while it's there. You'll be of no benefit to anyone else while it is there. To presume to sort someone else out with your own sin not dealt with is blatant hypocrisy. The plank needs to be dealt with by the grace of the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis writes a great deal of exposition. He says in this verse, No splinter detection without beam elimination. That's exactly it. And we maybe are eager for the, the splinter detection. Perhaps particularly if we're in leadership in the church of Jesus Christ, looking for the splinters to deal with them. But first, the beam elimination. The grace that cleanses and forgives. It's a call to have a a, a careful, spirit-led assessment of ourselves. That we expose ourselves to the word and its searchlight. And when the planks are illuminated, we deal with them through Christ and his blood and his grace. And then we are the fully trained that Jesus has spoken of, equipped to minister to others. Beware the plank. And beware the spirit that wants to detect the splinters but is reluctant to have the beam eliminated. Doesn't even want to admit the beam is there. Godly self-assessment in the light of Scripture applied by the Spirit. That's what we need always. Wherever we come to God's Word, it's in that Spirit that the Lord will apply the Word, will show us sin that needs to be forgiven, will draw us quickly to Christ. And the beam will be taken out. And we are ready for service. We are ready to minister to others and be a channel of blessing. Getting a clear view. How clear is your view? How clear is your view of yourself? Do you sit at the feet of Christ Exposed to the word, letting the Lord address you and search you and show you the planks and specks perhaps too. Do you bring them to the Lord for forgiveness, for removal? Do you delight to be a channel of the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ to lead others, not into pits of confusion and lostness, but into fruitful service? others. May the Lord enable us to have a clear view that the planks will be removed by grace. We will be fully trained and be good servants of the Lord.